How do you know when you're successful in life? What makes a life a success? Are there certain signs of success? About 30 years ago, I used to be part of a small men's group. Three of us would get together every Monday for an hour or so and just hold each other accountable. It was a doctor, myself, and another gentleman who was actually a, a retired former professional athlete. His name was Gary Dornhofer. Gary played for the Philadelphia Flyers, the Broad Street Bullies, back in the 70s when they won the Stanley Cup. We were sitting uh, this one Monday talking amongst ourselves and talking about life and the future and what our lives, you know, what our lives were all about and where we were heading. And as we got talking, I remember saying, I just want someday to have a statue of me when I die as a memory of my life. And we were kind of joking back and forth. And Gary said, actually, Darren, he said, it's not what you think. He said, if you go to Philadelphia outside the arena there, he said, there's a statue of me after I scored a goal. And he said, and every time I go and see that statue, it puts my life in perspective. I said, how is that, Gary? He said, because it's covered in pigeon poop. How do you know when you're successful? Now, how you answer the success question really depends upon your worldview. How our world determines success and how God determines success are not always the same thing. Jesus illustrated this reality in the story he told about a wealthy farmer. It's recorded in Luke chapter 12. Listen to what Jesus said as he told the story. Jesus said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Now he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. Now, so far, so good. No problem here. That is a wise, a smart business decision. But as Jesus tells the story, this is where things take a bit of a wrong turn. Let's keep reading. And the farmer said, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. So take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. By the way, when God calls you a fool, you're in trouble. God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? What was this guy's problem? It wasn't the farmer's success that was his problem. It was the farmer's response to his success that was the problem. The farmer had a very selfish and short-sighted perspective on his life. Look how Jesus concluded the story. Jesus said, and this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So what kind of decisions does God reward when it comes to how we use our money? What does God expect of us when it comes to how we handle our money? And why does God seem to expect us to sacrifice and to give away some of our resources? And then how are we supposed to do all that? We're going to do our best to answer these questions as we conclude our Tell Me Why series today. We're going to dig into what the authors of Scripture wrote on this subject, and then we're going to discover what I'm calling three biblical pillars for wise money management. Three guiding principles to help us make wise, God-endorsed financial decisions. So are you ready? Let's get started.
Here's the first biblical pillar for wise money management. It's on your outline today. Recognize God as the owner and yourself as the manager. Now, you're out there watching, and in the spirit of this series, you say, okay, why, Darren? Tell me why. Why should I recognize God as the owner and myself as the manager? Well, if you've been tracking with us for the last couple of weeks, it's the lesson we've been learning in the Garden of Eden. Recognizing this reality protects you from believing the lie that you are the source and the center of everything. Three mothers were sitting on a park bench and they were talking about their sons and how much their sons loved them. The first mother says, you know that big painting that's in the hallway of my home? That's a $20,000 painting. My son gave me that painting. That's how much he loves his mother. The second woman said, oh, that's nothing. You see that silver Rolls Royce in my driveway? That's a gift from Mother's Day that my son gave to me. That's how much my son loves me. The third mother said, well, that's nothing. My son, he sees the most expensive counselor in the whole country. And he sees that counselor five times a week. And when he's talking to that counselor, all he does is talk about me. That mother was so self-centered, so self-absorbed that she was blind to her dysfunction. Now, this first pillar protects us from becoming like that mother. It protects us from believing the lie that everything revolves around us. God is the creator of everything. That means God is the owner of everything. That's not complicated. The Bible puts it this way. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. It all belongs to him. God is the owner of everything, but he has graciously given you and me access to his creation. God has said, yes, everything belongs to me, but I'm willing to let you use my creation as long as you're wise with it, as long as you take care of it. Have you ever borrowed something from someone? Has someone ever allowed you to use something that belonged to them? I remember many, many years ago when my wife and I had four kids, but we just had one car, and I would have to go off to a, a conference for a, a few days. And so this gentleman in my congregation, he would always say, Pastor Darren, when you have to go away to a conference like that, you leave Jan with your car, and you take one of my vehicles. And this one time, he gave me his brand new, huge gold Cadillac. And so I was driving around this huge Cadillac in, at a pastor's conference in Victoria for a week, and I felt like a king. But I was very careful about this Cadillac, driving it on the ferry. Everywhere I parked, I parked far away from everyone else. I didn't want to scratch this brand new gold Cadillac from a guy in my congregation. Finally, when I brought it home safely, I then took my two sons in, in the car with me, and we took it to the car wash, and I was using this as a teaching lesson. I said, boys, why are we polishing and washing this car before we return it? And they'd said, because, Dad, you always say you should return something when you borrow it in as good or better condition than it was when you got it. I said, that's right. And so we were taking it through the car wash. We pull out of the car wash, and then they're drying it off, and I realized I left the radio on when it went through the car wash. The aerial was up, and it snapped off. I broke the guy's aerial on his brand-new Cadillac. That was the longest drive ever, taking it back to his house and explaining to him what had happened to his brand-new Cadillac. 
Well, when it comes to the world that you and I live in, God is the owner, creation is his Cadillac, and you and I are simply borrowing it for a while. Many years ago, King David, Israel's greatest king, wanted to build God a temple. And so David took up a collection amongst the people of Israel. Now, when they added up the total of everything that everyone had uh, donated, the, the, the total was overwhelming. They took in far more than they actually needed. Now, how did David respond to such generosity? David responded by acknowledging the true source of everything they had collected. Look what David said. David said, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have only given what comes from your hand. It's the first pillar of wise money management as a follower of Jesus. Recognize God as the owner and yourself as the manager. Okay then, well, if everything belongs to God, then how did I get access to it? Well, that brings us to the second pillar. Now, there are some aspects of God's creation that simply fall into our laps. Access to the stars in the sky, access to the air in our lungs. But there are other aspects of God's creation that don't so much fall into our laps as they are placed into our hands as a result of some kind of transaction or some kind of fair exchange. There was a farmer who every week sold a pound of butter to the local baker. One day the baker thought to himself, you know, I'm not convinced I'm actually getting a full pound of butter. So he put it on his, his uh, weigh scales and he weighed it out and realized, I'm not getting a full pound. He's giving me three quarters of a pound of butter here and I'm paying for a pound. He was so angry that the baker took the farmer to court. So the judge is standing in court with the farmer and the baker there. And the judge says to the farmer, so Farmer Jones, tell me, you know, how do you weigh uh, the butter that you sell to the baker? And the farmer says, judge, your honor, I'm just a simple farmer. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have fancy equipment. I don't even have special scales to weigh things. All I have are balancing scales where you put one thing on one side and one on the other and balances out. That's all. Well, the judge says, well, then how do you know that you are actually giving a pound of butter to the baker? And the farmer says, well, your honor, long before the baker was buying a pound of butter from me, I have been buying a pound of bread from him. So what I would do was every time he would bring the pound of bread to me, I'd put it on the, balance, put it on the balancing scales and I would give him as much butter as he was giving me bread. Basically, that's how most of our resources end up in our hands. We work within a system of bartering, a system of fair exchange. But instead of exchanging butter for bread, we exchange labor for money. And for thousands of years, God has essentially endorsed uh, this kind of a system. And that forms the second pillar of wise money management. As your outline says, to the best of your ability, Work to earn your money. Work to earn your income is how I phrased it on your outline today. To the best of your ability, work to earn your income. Now, not everyone is physically or even mentally able to work, but such individuals are the exception and not the rule. That's why I wrote, to the best of your ability, work to earn your income. Generally speaking, God designed things so that our access to resources is tied to our willingness to work. 
You say, okay, but why? Tell me why, Darren. Why should we have to work to earn our income? Well, when you read the scriptures, the answer is incredibly clear. Working to earn your income protects you from being aimless, idle, and dependent upon others. It protects you from being aimless, idle, and dependent on others. Now, apparently, this was a serious issue in the church in the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. The Apostle Paul had to remind them constantly about this second pillar. Look what he wrote to them in the first letter he wrote. He said, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Well, apparently, some people still weren't getting the message because Paul had to repeat himself speaking in even stronger words a couple years later when he wrote them a second letter. Look what he says this time. And notice how this is a little more intense. He says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who's idle and disruptive and doesn't live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to uh, such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. Look at the rule he gave them. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and we urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. What does God expect of us when it comes to how we handle our money? What does he expect of us when it comes to how we handle the resources in our hands? So far, we've learned two biblical pillars of wise money management. We've learned that we should recognize God as the owner and ourselves as the manager. Why? Because doing this protects us from believing the lie that we're the source and center of everything. Secondly, we've learned that to the best of our ability, we should work to earn our income. Why? Because this protects us from being aimless, idle, and dependent upon others. Which brings us to the third uh, pillar, the biblical pillar of wise money management. And this pillar really gets to the heart of today's core question when it comes to the whole area of sacrificing and giving away our financial resources. Here's the third pillar. Every follower of Jesus is called to return a portion of their income back to God and share a portion of their income with others. We're called to return a portion of our income back to God and share a portion of our income with others. Now, let's kind of pull back for a moment and get the big picture here. We've learned that everything belongs to God. We've learned that God has endorsed a system whereby his resources are then entrusted into our hands in response to our willingness to work. And now we're being told in this third pillar that once his resources actually are in our hands, we're supposed to return a portion back to him and share a portion with others. Okay, so why? 
Please tell me why, you're saying. What possible purpose does all of this giving and sharing actually accomplish? What purpose does it actually serve? Well, it serves two main purposes, as your outline says. It serves as both a protection from the deceitfulness of wealth and as an expression of the purest love imaginable. It protects us from the deceitfulness of wealth and it's an expression of the purest love imaginable. Now remember what we've learned in the series when it comes to Jesus' view of money. Nowhere does scripture teach that money is evil. Jesus never said it was evil. He simply said that it can be deceiving. It's powerful. You need to really be careful with how you handle money because it can do strange things to your mind. Several years ago, I had to uh, go through a, a minor surgical procedure. Just kind of an in and out kind of a thing. But I had to go in and, and you know, put on my hospital gown. And, and then they gave me this medication that knocked me out for about half an hour. All I remember is waking up after the procedure and suddenly, somehow, I was back in my clothes. Apparently, I took off my gown, put my clothes back on. Jan came and picked me up. I don't remember any of it. I don't remember dressing myself. I don't remember walking out to the car. As Jan tells me, we went to a, a restaurant, picked up some food. I don't remember any of that. She told me I had this wonderful conversation with her. I don't remember any of that. All I remember was feeling really, really good. Whatever medication they gave me, I really enjoyed it. Let me tell you that much. Well, wealth is like that powerful medication. It's not evil, but it needs to be handled wisely and carefully because wealth can change and warp our perception of reality. That's what the ancient writer of Proverbs was trying to communicate when he wrote, two things I ask of you, Lord, don't refuse me before I die. First of all, keep falsehood and lies from me. Secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That writer was essentially saying, protect me, Lord, from the deceitfulness of wealth. I don't trust myself if I become rich or poor. Now, one way God protected us from wealth's power to distort reality was to institute something called the tithe. God instructed the people in the Old Testament to return one-tenth of their income, that's what the word tithe means, one-tenth of their income back to him as an act of worship. In Leviticus 27, it says, A tithe, one-tenth of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy. It's set apart to the Lord. Why? Why did God do this? God instituted this as a constant physical reminder of the first pillar that we learned about today. God instituted this as a constant physical reminder that he's the owner and we're the managers. God instituted this as a way of protecting us from deception and as a way of retraining our brains so we don't growl like my dog every time our, God's hands come near our food. So we return a portion of our income back to God because it serves as a protection from the deceitfulness of wealth. You say, okay, but why should we share a portion of, income, of our income with others? We do this as an expression of the purest love imaginable. What comes to your mind when you think about God? 
How would you describe God, the nature of God? The Apostle John described God using one word in a, a letter he wrote. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, God is love. And in Broadway, we know that word love very well. It's the word agape. Of all the different Greek words that John could have used for love, and there are four essential words, he used the word agape, which was the Greek word for the purest love imaginable. Unconditional love. Love at the highest level. And John said, that is what God is like. That is the nature of God. God is the purest love imaginable. And you and I were created to experience and express this purest love imaginable. You were made to experience God's love. You were made to express and demonstrate God's love. Now, we experience the purest love imaginable through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, we were created to experience his love, but we actually turned our back on God's love and rebelled against him. That's what sin is. It's a rebellion against God. And we chose sin and rejected God's love. But because he loves us with the purest love imaginable, he went above and beyond. He didn't abandon us. He didn't turn his back on us, but instead he ran towards us. He came to us in the form of his son, Jesus, who lived a sinless, perfect life and then gave his life as a ransom for us, paying our moral debt and then offering us the gift of love, the gift of the purest love imaginable, the gift of absolute forgiveness and cleansing. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to accept his gift of the purest love imaginable, to experience once again what we were created to experience, the purest love imaginable, agape love. You experience this by accepting the gift that Jesus purchased through his life, death, and resurrection. If you haven't yet experienced that gift, if you've not yet accepted it, at the end of today's teaching, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. Well, so we experience the purest love imaginable through Jesus Christ. And one of the ways we express the purest love imaginable is through how we use the resources that God's placed in our hands. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul taught us a couple weeks ago? He said in 2 Corinthians 9, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. See the linkage. You'll be enriched so you can be generous. I'm giving you my resources so you can share my resources. In a letter to a young man named Titus, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, our people, Christ followers, must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Why? In order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. In a letter he wrote to the church in the ancient city of Ephesus, Paul wrote this. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but they must work doing something useful with their own hands. Again, that's that second pillar, work to earn your income. But then look what he said. They should do this that they may have something to share with those in need. Why should we share a portion of our income with others? Because it's an expression of the purest love imaginable. Okay, we're almost ready to wrap things up. But first, let's do a quick review. Why or what does God expect us to do with the resources he's placed in our hands? Why does God expect us to, to sacrifice and to give away some of these resources? We've answered by providing three biblical pillars for wise money management. We learn that we should recognize God as the owner and ourselves as the managers. 
because doing this protects us from believing the lie that we are the source and center of everything. We've learned that to the best of our ability, we should work to earn our income. Why? Because doing this protects us from being aimless, idle, and dependent upon others. And thirdly, we learned that every follower of Jesus is called to return a portion of their income back to God and to share a portion of their income with others. Why? We just learned because it serves as a protection from the deceitfulness of wealth and as an expression of the purest love imaginable. And all this brings us to today's big idea where we sum up the teaching in one simple sentence. Why should I sacrifice with my resources? Because God promotes the sacrificing of my earthly wealth to prevent the sacrificing of my eternal life. God promotes the sacrificing of my earthly wealth to prevent the sacrificing of my eternal life. That is why we give to God and we share with others. It protects us and it helps others. It protects us from wealth's deceit and it enables us to express the purest love imaginable to the people around us. God promotes the sacrificing of my earthly wealth to prevent the sacrificing of my eternal life. Now, before we conclude, let me take my last five minutes to answer one more question that I'm certain is on the minds of many of you who are watching. You say, so how is a person supposed to do this? You've told us why, Darren. Now you've got to tell us how. How can a follower of Jesus live this? Is there any practical guidance out there? Well, there is. So let me leave you with a possible next step you might consider. Historically, many Christ followers have utilized what's known as the 10-10-80 principle. The 10-10-80 principle. Now, for centuries, followers of Jesus have sought to live out these three pillars by budgeting according to these three priorities. First of all, return 10% back to God as an act of worship. Now, admittedly, the tithe is an Old Testament principle. The New Testament does not explicitly teach it. The New Testament teaches generosity and being a cheerful giver. The, the Apostle Paul said, don't be reluctant, but be a cheerful giver. God doesn't like it when we pout when we give. Give what you can give cheerfully is what the New Testament teaches. Be generous and be cheerful with, when you give. So it's up to you to decide what cheerful generosity looks like in your life. I can only speak for myself in this matter. As I weighed it all out and looked at the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament options, I came to this. In the Old Testament, uh, the people of God access God through the sacrificial system. Animals would be slain. Their blood would be spread on, on, on the mercy seat in, in the tabernacle in the temple of God. But that blood just covered over sin. It didn't take away sin. It didn't give us full access to the presence of God. The spirit of God could not live with us because of the sin within us. The, the blood just temporarily covered over sin. But in the New Testament, meaning the new contract, the new covenant, 
God made a new arrangement. He himself came in the form of Jesus. He died as the ultimate lamb of God. And his blood didn't just cover over our sins. It cleansed our sins. It washed them away completely to the point, to the degree that the spirit of God can actually now live within me. My spirit and his spirit live together. What an incredible benefit. What an incredible difference from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I look at that and I say, okay, in the Old Testament, they responded to God by giving him 10%. And in the New Testament, am I going to respond to what God has done by giving him less than they gave in the Old Testament? I cannot justify that in my mind. Now, if 10% is too big for you right now, then you choose a percentage that you can give cheerfully and start there. So secondly... After the first 10% is given to God as an act of worship, secondly, set aside another 10% for yourself in preparation for the future. First 10% goes to God, the second 10% goes to yourself for saving. Isn't it amazing how giving God 10% sounds like crazy talk, but giving ourselves 10% sounds like incredibly wise financial advice? Well, it is wise financial advice, and you would be wise to follow it. Let's review. Give the first 10% of your income back to God as an act of worship. Set aside the next 10% of your income for yourself, saving it for your future. Okay, so what about the remaining 80% of God's money that he's placed in my hands? What do I do with that? Use the remaining 80% for living expenses and for sharing opportunities. The remaining 80% use it for living expenses and for sharing opportunities. You see, it's out of this pool of funds that we live our lives. It's out of the remaining 80% that we pay our bills and we share with others. Essentially, this is what we live off of. The Apostle Paul said, we shouldn't put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put our hope in God. Now look at this next line. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Everything you have, God has richly provided to you, and he provided it to you for your enjoyment. So enjoy it. You can spend the rest however you choose, however you feel, on whatever you desire. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Darren, I cannot possibly live off of 80% of my present income. These are your decisions to make, but... Here's what I can tell you from personal experience of seeking to live this out for the last 40 years of my life. I have discovered that Jesus was not lying to us when he said, do not worry, saying, what do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? For the pagans, people who are apart from God, they run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you as well. Folks, obey God with your finances. Trust God with your finances. Sacrifice with your finances. And our God will supply all of your needs through his riches in Christ Jesus. It's his promise. Let's pray together as we conclude. God, you see our hearts, you see our lives, you see our fears, you see our weaknesses, you see all of us. And you love us with the purest love imaginable. 
So as we ponder all these truths that we have learned over the last few weeks when it comes to the resources you've placed in our hands, we want to obey you. We want to trust you. We want to steward the resources in our hands according to your design. So teach us your ways. Grow faith in our hearts and in our lives. Speak to us, each of us, where we are at right now in each of our lives. We declare that we trust you. We believe you. Our faith is in you. So help our unbelief. Help our fear. Speak to us at our point of need, I pray. And help us make wise decisions moving forward from this moment on. And for those who are watching right now and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you've still been living your life apart from the purest love imaginable. Right now, I want to give you an opportunity to accept God's gift of forgiveness and eternal life. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, he loves you, he knows you, and he wants to pour his life and his love into you. You can receive this gift of forgiveness and eternal life and his, his unimaginable love right now by just praying this prayer with me. Just agree with me as I pray. God, I acknowledge my rebellion. I acknowledge I have not lived the life you designed for me to live, that I've turned my back on you. I've been separated from your love. I don't want to live separated from your love anymore. So I accept the gift that you purchased by your son, Jesus. Cleanse me. Forgive me. I turn my back on that old way of living. I don't want to live that way anymore. Fill me with your spirit and lead me and guide me from this moment forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, on the screen right now, there's a number that you can text that number and tell somebody about the decision you've made, and they'll help you take the next step. Now, we're not tricking you. You're not joining Broadway Church, but we just want to offer our services to you in any way we can to help you take that next step. Oh, and by the way, before rushing away today, why not stick around for just a, three or four or five minutes and watch as two of our staff members, Sydney and Spencer, become ordained ministers. What does that mean? It means this is when they go from being Pastor Sydney and Pastor Spencer to being Reverend Sydney and Reverend Spencer. It's a real moment of honor in their lives, and I'm sure they would be honored if you could watch and celebrate with them. So stick around right now and let's watch for that ordination service. God bless you, folks. I look forward to seeing you next week when I begin a brand new series called Better You. I'm looking forward to that next Sunday. God bless you. Thank you for being with us at Broadway Church today.